Hi friends, welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. By joining together on this journey with thousands of other people, we're transforming our lives by making the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of our daily lives. It doesn't matter whether you're here for the first time or you've been here from the very beginning. You're very welcome and you're very welcome to just study along at whatever pace suits you. You can pick up today where we're partway through season three, Gospel of Matthew, or you can make the decision to go right back to the beginning and just work along at whatever pace is comfortable for you. There are new episodes posted every day, Monday to Friday, five days a week. And if you are here for the first time, then please consider clicking the subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcasts from, and that way you'll never miss another single episode. And please do hang around at the end, and I'll just tell you of a few ways that you can connect to other free teaching resources I make available through this and my other ministries. So with that all said, it's bye for now, and I'll see you at the back end. Okay, friends, welcome back. Today we're going to be covering the verses in Matthew from Matthew chapter 18 from verses 7 through to 14. And I'll do what I'll always do. I'll read you the entire section here at the top of the podcast and then we'll go back and work our way through it expositionally verse by verse and hopefully reach some conclusions and applications by the time we get to the end. So I'll begin to read to you beginning at Matthew 18 verse 7. Now this is Jesus speaking. Woe to the world because of offences. For offences must come, but woe to that man by whom the offence comes. If your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than have two hands or two feet and be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than have two eyes and to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not even stray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So we're going to cover this section today and uh, title I've given it the working title is dealing with sin by surgical incision so what we're going to do is I'm just going to go back to the beginning and read to you a couple of verses at a time and we'll work through it together in that format so in the usual way let's revisit the passage verse by verse and Jesus opened by saying woe to the world because of offenses for offenses must come but woe to the man to whom the offense comes 
If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet and to be cast into everlasting fire. And then he repeats that idea this time referring to our eyes and what we see. And it says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it out from you. And again, he says, it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than of two eyes and to be cast into hell fire. At least that's the translation of it I'm using here in the New King James Version. But there are other words. There are different versions of this place of punishment, which I'll get to in a moment. So, when thinking about the whole passage, there are two senses, two ways in which this passage can be interpreted. It can be taken purely personally, and it's saying that it is worth almost any sacrifice, almost any self-denial to escape the potential wrath of God. Now, we have to be clear what this punishment involves in the way it's described here. It is referred to using the word everlasting. And this word everlasting occurred frequently in Jewish ideas and thoughts, particularly about punishment. The ancient Jewish writings speak frequently about what they call eternal judgment. About judgment forever, referring it to it as a fire which burns forever. That's quite something, isn't it? There was even a very famous teacher at the time of Christ a man called Rabbi Yochan ben Zakaya, who said he wept bitterly at the prospect of death. On being asked why, he answered, All the more I weep now, before they lead me before the King of Kings, the Holy One, is less time spent weeping in eternity. So all these words, all these passages, they all paint a sort of picture, a background cultural picture, if you like. And this is context into which Jesus is talking and teaching. But we have to be very careful to remember what it means and careful in how we approach it. You see, the word translated here as everlasting actually literally means belonging to the ages. And of course, there is only one person to whom the word truly eternal everlasting belonging to the ages can properly be applied and that is God himself so there is a reference here to being outside if one is outside the favor of God and remains in that place one will remain outside the favor of God eternally there's far more in this word eternal than simply a description of something that has no end And punishment, which is said to be eternal, is punishment which befits God in the sense that he is the only one who can truly give a punishment which can be eternal. Now, when we think of God's punishment, if we stick strictly to the scriptures, there's a limited amount of information in the Old Testament. A few verses from Genesis, in fact, tell us, when speaking of God, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So our human pictures and our human time schemes, they kind of fail to grasp that these situations and these events are in the hands of God and in the hands of God eternally. But there is another clue which we have here, and this passage speaks of the place of punishment. Now I read it as hell as it appears in the King James and the New King James Version, but the actual word used by Jesus on this occasion was the word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was a place beside Jerusalem, 
adjacent to Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom, a valley just below the mountain of Jerusalem. And it was said to be an accursed place, because it was the place in those days where in the background to the days of the Jewish people, in the nation's fall from grace and within their history, it's where Jews sacrificed their children by throwing them into the fire and they sacrificed them to a pagan god called Molech. Now, in the days of Jesus, this place still existed, but it had just become a sort of refuge dump for the whole city of Jerusalem, a kind of vast incinerator. The refuge was set fire to and was always, always burning continually there, and there was a pall of smoke cast above it all the time. As an aside, I would assume there was also a stench permanently attached to it. You see, Gehenna was the place in which everything that was useless, all the waste, everything like that was cast there and was just left to burn and be destroyed. Now, in perhaps some ways, there is a sense in which the picture this paints perhaps tells us that God's punishment of sin in some way addresses those those things or those people who make no contribution to the life of others, who have no value, for those people who hold back life instead of urging life on, for those people who drag people down into sin instead of lifting people up, those people who by their actions and by their sins are an impediment to others instead of being an inspiration to others and an encourager of others, and people who build others up in Christ and encourage them to lead a better holy life. Again and again, the New Testament teaches that the person who, because of living in an unregenerate state, becomes an evil influence on others, and how terrible that situation is. The simple fact of their living in that unrepentant, sinful state by nature drags people down. And they remain in danger of constantly staying in that state permanently unless by turning to God he is then able to surgically remove from the life those things that make them a hindrance to God's will in their lives and in the lives of other people. But as I said at the beginning, there's two ways you can interpret this passage, both of which I believe are true individually and are both true at the same time. Because it is not just possible to take this passage as applying to an individual, I believe it also has an application in the life of the church, any church, the community of believers. Matthew sort of has already said this when he's quoting Jesus, talking in a different context in Matthew 5.30. But here the context is different. Because previously, when Jesus has talked about it, he's talked about it for the individual. But the context here is about, remember, he's just taken the child and used him as a symbol, a picture of the immature Christian disciple. And talking about how our faith should be like that, one of trusting like a child. So this passage may be saying that in your church, there may be someone or some things which have become an evil influence within that situation. If there is someone who is, say, a bad example, particularly to those who are young and immature in the faith, if there is someone who by their life and conduct is damaging the body of the church and pulling people away, then that they must be rooted out and cast away, cast off. The church is the body of Christ. And if that body is to remain healthy and health-giving, then the very seeds of any 
to use the health simile, any seeds, the beginnings of any cancerous or poisonous infection must be surgically removed. One thing is certain, in any individual or in any church, wherever there is a seduction to sinful living, it must be removed, however painful that removal may be, individually or collective. Because if we allow that thing to flourish, then a worse punishment and a worse situation will await those who follow on in that way. So in these opening verses, I believe there is stress both the necessity to abandon sinful practices, but not just for the Christian individual, but for the entire Christian community and the ongoing protection of the church. Okay, let's pick up where Jesus uses this analogy, very famous one of the shepherd and the lost sheep. Reading from verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. So again, he's using the child as an example. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish? Now, this is one of the most well-known, you might say, straightforward of all the parables of Jesus. It's a simple story of a lost sheep and a a shepherd going out and seeking it and finding it and bringing it back to safety. Now, in Judea, it was very easy for sheep to go astray. The pasture land, you see, was on hill country, and that hill country ran like a sort of backbone down the middle of the land. It was actually a raised ridge-like plateau, quite narrow, only a few miles across at its widest point, but it had no restraining walls or barriers that ran along its edges and therefore sheep were very liable if they wandered off they could stray off the grass of the plateau and they could fall into gullies and ravines or they could end up finishing on some ledge which they couldn't get up or down and they would stay marooned there until they died. But the shepherds at the time of Jesus were experts at tracking down their lost sheep. They were known that they would follow their track for miles and they would even brave those cliffs and precipices to bring them back. Now, I always was challenged by this when I read it first time or heard it first time as a child because I still struggled with the idea of Jesus going off and leaving all these other sheep to their own devices while he was searching but then I realized that in the time of Jesus the flocks were often communal flocks and this is the context into which he's teaching they didn't belong to an individual but to a village And there were therefore usually two or three shepherds with them at any point in time. And that's why he's able to talk about a single shepherd being able to leave the 99. Because he would be able to do that in the knowledge that there would be another guardian shepherd, if you like, who would be caring for the sheep. That is obviously a great picture of the church and and its role there is shepherding the people. So this shepherd, the great shepherd, could go off and find the one that was lost but he would leave the other sheep in the care of his fellow shepherds while he searched for the wanderer. And the shepherds of that day would make great efforts, sacrificial efforts, strenuous efforts sometimes, to find a sheep 
and drag them back, sometimes necessarily by hook or by crook, literally. But the story is, and the end result was, the sheep would be brought back alive. We can imagine in a situation like that, the other shepherds would, at the end of the day, perhaps return with the flocks to the, the, the village fold at the evening time, and that sometimes there would be one shepherd who was still off in the mountainside seeking the lost sheep. We can also perhaps imagine how the eyes of the people would turn to the hillside, watching out for that shepherd who had not come home. And we can also imagine the joy that would be greeted when they saw him returning along the pathway, that weary wandering sheep perhaps slung across and around his shoulder, safe and last. That's a picture that is familiar of Jesus. I'm sure you've seen paintings like that. Perhaps then the whole village, the whole community would welcome that lost sheep and gather round gladness to hear the story of the one that was lost and how he was found. And here we have what Jesus is using is would have been a favourite picture of something that would uh, paint a picture of celebration and comfort and reward, a picture used to show of God's love and of God's love for his people. And this parable teaches us many things, I think, about that love despite its simple exterior. Firstly, this shows the love of God is an individual love. The 99 sheep being safe and secure were not enough. God's love expands to fill the space available. One sheep is just out on the hillside and the shepherd, the great shepherd, will not rest until it's brought home. It's a bit like our human families. However large a family, a parent is not going to abandon one for the sake of the others. And for God too, that applies there. There is not a single one of us that does not matter greatly to him. That's what this passage tells me anyway. God is like that. God cannot be happy. God cannot rest until the very last wanderer is gathered in. Secondly, this tells me that the love of God is a patient love. You know, sheep are notoriously foolish creatures. And often when sheep wander off, the reality is they have no one to blame but themselves. And when they get into danger, it is they get themselves into danger. But thankfully, we too, even when we behave like sheep, God is always patient. You know, as human beings, we're apt to have little patience with people who are foolish or endlessly get themselves into trouble or fall short. When we see this happening with people we know, we're apt to say, we're inclined to say, well, it's their own fault. They brought it on themselves, and we tend not to waste any time on people who in the end we just see as fools. But you know, this tells me that God is not like that. God does not see people that way. The sheep, we are as sheep, and we might be foolish, but the great shepherd will still go to extreme lengths to save us, risk his life to save us, and in our case, die on a cross in order to save us. People, yeah, we may be foolish, but God loves every foolish individual, even the one who has no one to blame but themselves, even us who have no one to blame for our own sinful state and sorrow but our own act. And thirdly, this tells me that the love of God is a seeking and searching love. The shepherd, the great shepherd, is not content to wait for the sheep to come back. He goes out to search them out. Now, this is really important because this aspect of God is something 
that the religious Jew could never understand. They could never grasp the idea of a Christian God. And I would gladly agree that if a sinner came back crawling wretchedly home, asking for forgiveness, that God would forgive. But the idea revealed here goes way above and beyond that because what it says in here, that God in Christ, it's a far more wonderful thing because he goes and he goes to seek those who have wandered away, to actively seek those who are lost and bring them back within the fold. You see, the God revealed by Jesus in the New Testament is not content to wait upon us to find our way back to him. He actively goes out in search for us no matter what the cost for him. And by allowing his son Jesus to come and incarnate on the earth, that was God seeking us out and being amongst us in order to find us and rescue us. And then finally, the love of God revealed in this passage, I think, tells us that the love of God is a great rejoicing love. There is seen to be nothing but joy on these occasions. There are no recriminations. There's no receiving the person back, the one who's wandered astray with a judge or a sense of contempt or a sense of unforgiveness. It is all joy. In our own human nature, we're inclined to, yeah, we'll accept a penitent person, but we'll often want to include a moral lecture or a punishment along with it. And we'll only, when we see a clear indication or if we see them regarding themselves with what we consider a suitable level of self-loathing, then we might be deigned to forgive them. It is human nature often to hold things over people, to refuse to forget someone's past, and always to remember their sins against them. But God here is seen to put our sins totally behind his back, and when we return to him, it's seen as all joy. And finally, the other thing I think this points out is that the love of God is also a protecting love. It is a love which seeks and saves, yes, but the love of God is a protecting love which saves someone from something and for the service of their fellow human beings. God's love is a saving love, a love which should inspire the saved one to love his fellow human beings, a love which makes the wanderer return. It can make the weak strong. It can make the sinner pure. It can make the one who is captive and tied up in sin free. Not only on that day, but forevermore. Okay, folks, that's it for today. I do hope you found that helpful. And we'll return and pick up a new section tomorrow. The place this podcast is hosted is the Bible Project on buzzsprout.com. And that's the place where you can be sure you'll find all the active links to all the different ways you can connect to this ministry, as well as other free teaching resources I make available. Things like a transcript of every podcast, along with other discipleship, more formal structured courses that I occasionally offer, and individual uh, teaching sessions that I do in secular environments. So you'll be able to find the places to access them there. They may very well be available through links and wherever it is you receive your podcasts from, but if you're not seeing active links in the place that you listen to, then don't worry, you can always connect with me. You can find where it's hosted at thebibleproject.buzzsprite.com. 
And like I've said, if you haven't done that already, then why not subscribe so you too can make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life from here on in. And I believe you will be transformed by it and by the power of God through it. So other than that, I'll say bye-bye for now, and I do hope I'll see you back here tomorrow. It'll be tomorrow for me anyway. It'll be whatever day that you choose to listen at whatever pace you're working through this together with us. So with that said, bye for now.